I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Um, I hope that you have had a chance to check out We Found Time, wefoundtime.com, my new online magazine. We have such amazing essays out this week, and I really hope you'll take the time to go read them or send them to friends or see what you think. And I'd love your feedback if you have any thoughts. All the essays on We Found Time are written by authors who have been on this podcast already. So it's original content and I think it's really awesome. So I really hope you'll check it out. This week's sponsor is Nini's Treats, which is my in-laws crumb cake business. And it is so good. And they had gone on hiatus for a little while and they're back in business now, stronger than ever. And it's the best crumb cake in all different flavors. And you can order it on goldbelly.com. And their brand is called Nini's Treats. Nini is my husband Kyle's grandmother, N-E-N-E apostrophe S, Nini's Treats. And you just search it on Goldbelly and they have this amazing black and white crumb cake and a regular crumb cake. And anyway, it's really delicious. And for everybody who is at home and going stir crazy, um, it will ship really quickly and fresh and you can freeze it if you don't want to eat it right away. So anyway, ninistreats.com or go buy it on goldbelly.com. I'm here today with Lisa Damore, PhD, who is the New York Times bestselling author of Untangled and her latest book, Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. She is the monthly adolescence columnist for the New York Times, a graduate of Yale University with honors, where she worked at the Yale Child Study Center, which, by the way, so did I when I was at Yale. Dr. Damore earned her doctorate from the University of Michigan. She has written many academic papers related to child development and education. Dr. Damore currently directs Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. She maintains a private psychotherapy practice, consults, speaks internationally, and is a senior advisor to the Schubert Center for Child Studies at Case Western Reserve University. She currently lives in Shaker Heights, Ohio, with her husband and two daughters. Welcome, Dr. Damore. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. We've had like a little session. I feel like you've already helped me out <laughs> through my emotional issues. So. Psychologists are here to make people feel better. That's Thank our job. Thank you. You're welcome. I got a little like freebie or something on our, <laughs> on our way upstairs. Okay, your most recent book, Under Pressure. Please tell listeners what it's about. So the subtitle is Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. And... What it's about is that I've been practicing for almost 25 years now, and in that time, I would say it wasn't until about 10 years ago that I started hearing stress and anxiety come up a lot in conversations, and then I would say within the last five years, it is the conversation. And that told me that it was a piece I probably wanted to work on, and also What I have been hearing in the broad culture doesn't actually match what we know in psychology about stress and anxiety, that the culture as a whole talks about stress and anxiety as though they are always harmful, always pathological, that we want to avoid them. This is not at all the view in psychology. We actually appreciate that both stress and anxiety have a very wide band of healthy and that there is such a thing as unhealthy stress and unhealthy anxiety, but that's, you know, a percentage, a small percentage of it. And so I felt that I could write a book that I hoped would be reassuring in terms of articulating what we know as psychologists. And I really mean the word no, not things that we're thinking through, not fresh stuff in the field, not controversial information. And then to really try to give parents lots of ways to then respond helpfully when their daughter is stressed and anxious. And I would say 80% of everything I write also applies to boys, but 
usually it's tipped towards girls. <laughs> I know you did have something in here about it happening more to women, this this feeling of stress. In the beginning of your book, you talked about how teens these days feel more stressed than their parents, which I found very interesting. Although some days my parents seem to be very stressed, but they experience the emotional and physical symptoms of chronic tension, like edginess and fatigue. And adolescents who report being highly anxious and coping with emotional problems are on the rise. And you wrote that these trends do not affect our sons and daughters equally. It's the girl who suffer more. So why is that? So there's probably a couple reasons. One is that anxiety disorders have always been disproportionately diagnosed in girls and women as opposed to boys and men, that it's usually sort of been a two-to-one ratio in ter- terms of anxiety disorder diagnoses. And the reason for this is we think it's largely socialization, that girls and women are taught that if they're distressed to sort of collapse in on themselves, depression, anxiety, things like that. And boys and men are taught by the culture when they are distressed to act out, you know, to mix it up, to get themselves in trouble. So it's not that boys and men don't suffer. They don't suffer as often as girls and women suffer in terms of feeling highly anxious and having the technical term is internalizing disorders, you know, holding it all in. So there's that reason. The other thing, though, if we think about, like, well, why is it getting worse? Or, you know, what's happening now? Why does this feel like it's taken this particular shape? I worry that... We keep adding stuff to girls' plates and nothing's coming off. Mm. That girls are crushing it academically and they're incredible athletes and they're incredible musicians and they're starting businesses and they're still supposed to be cute and they're still (laughs) supposed to be nice, you know, and they're still supposed to make everyone feel comfortable and maintain a whole lot of social ties and be agreeable doing the things we ask them to do. And, And I think that piece, you know, not that I want to go back to some retrograde, you know, moment when girls don't have all the opportunities they have available, but all of this opportunity without the permission to excuse oneself from cultural pressures to be adorable or thin or pleasant all the time isn't a great recipe, I think, for girls. Yeah, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) That's my hunch. (laughs) I'll I'll go with you. You said also in your book, when we talk about now that we've acknowledged the stress of girls, how to deal with it. And you said one of the ways is that girls learn to cope with their stresses by watching their parents, everybody. But, you know, and I read this and I was like, oh, no. (laughs) It's like how we manage this as parents is going to inform how our kids end up coping. What, what are you supposed to do if you're a parent who's stressed out about stuff, which I'm obviously showing you that I am today about various things, but how do you mask it? Because I feel like kids, even when you pretend like everything's fine, they have like those extrasensory abilities to know that you actually are hiding how you feel. So yeah. what, what do you do? Well, so I think you're right that we should work with the assumption that our kids know us better than we know ourselves. You know, well, they, they can detect, you know, a change in the weather that we don't even know has happened to us internally. So I think there's a few ways to tackle it. One is for us to be accepting of our own stress, to say, oh, man, I had such a day. Like, I am really feeling the force of it. I I am really pretty tapped out right now. You may notice I'm a little bit tense. I'll be better later, but right now I'm feeling it. So there's a way you don't have to hide it, but there's a way to talk about it that doesn't seem frightened of it or worried about the implications of feeling stressed at all. And, And that was part of why I wrote this book is I thought, man, you know, With the culture giving stress and anxiety such a bad name, kids now get stressed about being stressed, (laughs) you know, and anxious about being anxious. So part of how we can actually help them is to be like, man, I'm pretty, pretty stressed, right? But while saying it in a sense of like, so be it, and I'll be okay, you know, this, this will come, this will go. 
So I think there's that piece. And then the thing I'm really interested in is how we model coping. Because you're always going to need to cope. And then I think, well, there's a smorgasbord of what coping looks like. So sometimes coping looks like reaching out to someone you think can be helpful and asking their thoughts and guidance. Or it can be going for a walk. Or it can be, you know, watching what I call brain rinse television, like really dumb stuff that just, you know, gives us tremendous relief. Or it can be being super crabby with everybody. Or it can be having too much wine. Or it can be, you know, so I think it's less about keeping stress at bay or cloaking it and more about talking openly about stress and anxiety as a natural part of being human and then modeling excellent coping with it would be my way for us to sort of walk up to this as parents. So what are a couple hacks for good coping? So good coping would be something like, I'll say I have two daughters and and I'll say, hey, will you take a lap around the block with me? Like, I would just, like, I just need some fresh air. Like, just getting outside, I'll feel better. I bet you'll feel better. Like, would you do that with me? So something like that. Mm-hmm. Or I, for me, walking, actually, is is a really a big relief. Or I think that around our house is actually to be, like, to goof a lot, you know, and to sort of play in, like, a goofy space. And so I would say playing with some version, at least, you know, I think every family's got their own, you know, atmosphere and how they do it. But well, I have a kind of funny story, actually, Great. <laughs> Okay, about my kids being playful with me and, and, and me being playful with them. It involves saying the word ass, so I hope that's okay on your podcast. It is now. Okay, now it's cleared, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I had been speaking at a school in Columbus, Ohio, and there was a, the head of school was a lovely guy and big, tall guy, big, tall guy. And somehow we got talking about our dream cars. And he told me this story that I thought was really funny, where he said that he'd always wanted a a mini Fiat. And then the day finally came where he could get a mini Fiat and he picked it out of the dealer and his wife came down and his wife looked at this big tall guy standing next to this mini Fiat. And his wife said to him, you are a grown ass man. <laughs> like, it just cracked me up so much. So he's like, so I've got this SUV I don't even want. <laughs> so I thought this was so funny. And I came home and I told my two daughters who are nine and 16 and they thought it was so funny. And then a few weeks after that, I needed to give a talk. I live in Shaker Heights, Ohio. I needed to give a talk. I got to give a talk at Metro Health in Cleveland, which is one of our hospitals that does some of the heaviest lifting on caring for the poorest members of our community. And it's in a very complex and tangly neighborhood to get to. And I get lost extremely easily. And my da- I was complaining to my daughters that morning. I was like, oh, you guys have to go down to Metro. Like, I'm afraid I'm going to get lost. Like, you know, I just, this is the moment when like, maybe I'll take an Uber just so I don't have to deal with it. And my nine-year-old goes, you are a grown-ass woman. <laughs> you need to just get yourself down to Metro. And in that kind of playful, like, you know, get over yourself, yeah. you know, kind of thing. And, and it just cracked me up so much. And it actually really helped. It was really funny. And so that's sort of now this running joke in the family. And it's not always going to be the right thing at the right time. But that's an example of where... You know, if a kid is really feeling, you know, every once in a while we'll bust out like, well, hey, you're a grown-ass woman. Why don't you just deal with that test, you know? And so every family is going to find their own formula, but it's okay to have things be hard. We can't be frightened of those things if we don't want our kids to be frightened of them. I love that. I'm going to try to use that in an appropriate way. (laughs) Or not. Or not. Or maybe not. I loved in the book how you drew attention to the words stinks and handle and how you say those more often than not when talking to teen girls. And tell me how you use them and how they've been so helpful to you. So much of caring for teenagers, whether it's at home or in a practice like I do, 
is they just complain about stuff. <laughs> they just they got a lot of complaints, you know, and they're unhappy about a lot of things. And I generally think they're almost 100% accurate about what they find to be not the way they wish it were and maybe not even as it should be. And one thing that I notice as a common misstep, and I make this constantly in my own life, is that when teenagers complain to us, we're pretty quick to rush in with suggestions and solutions. And then we're shocked, shocked when they don't seem to want to take our advice. So I have found that the word stinks is my placeholder because what it reminds me of is that empathy is intensely therapeutic. And we blow right past it, forget its utility, and then jump in with ideas, which most teenagers don't want or don't want right away. And so for me, when a teenager is unloading, whatever the miseries are of the day, I listen really intently. I mean, I'm not just waiting until they stop talking. And then I say, man, that stinks. Like, that, that one stinks. And, and there's something so economic about the word because it's really, it's just got enough of a point on it that they feel like you heard them. And it also has a little bit of, like, you know, but it's within the realm of, of like, stuff that happens, right? Not great, but in the realm of stuff that, like, kind of happens if you leave the house. And then after we've sat with it, I'll say, I think it's something you can handle. And, and for me, handle is this critical word around managing stress and anxiety. Because when teenagers are upset, the world for them can suddenly divide into two categories. Stuff they like and stuff they consider a crisis. And the role of adults is to constantly reintroduce the enormous middle category that takes up most of life, which is like stuff we neither like nor is a crisis. It's just the stuff we handle. And so I feel like it's my way of trying to reintroduce this idea of you don't have to like it, nor does anybody have to step in. This is in the handle category. And I don't like manage because manage feels like you're still under it a little bit. And for me, handle is... You're a grown-ass woman. Like you can, you know, you can, you can get in there and deal with this while not liking it at all. And so, when I was in my training, I had this really fabulous and also kind of mean supervisor, and she would say to me when I was learning how to take care of patients, she would say, "You get eight words, eight words per utterance, like no more." And and that's really hard to do. But the discipline that one gains is you realize if you're going on and on, like you've already lost the person, and so. When psychologists are doing our best work, we're very surgical in our use of language. We just go right for it quickly and directly and right to the heart of it if we can. And so for me, stinks and handle are my really solid old standbys on that. Eight words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's really tough. It is. Wait, how many was that? Eight <laughs> words. That's really tough. That was five. Yeah. But every time I've ever, I mean, in in. 25 years of practicing, every time I really felt like I helped someone really shift, it was a sentence that maybe we built up to over months. You know, but I think about a young woman who was having a hard time leaving a job that had been given to her at a time when she didn't really deserve it and she knew it. And then she went in and just did a phenomenal job, actually turned a whole group around. And she was feeling incredibly bad about leaving. And I remember I said to her, they saved you before you saved them. And I don't know how many words that is. But it was just enough to... I think it's seven. Oh, okay, that's pretty good. <laughs> to let us pivot into something else. And if you think about that versus if I were like, well, you know what happened? Like, first you got there and you were feeling guilty. And so, you know, and now you're not feeling guilty. So then, you know, uh, 
you're already deep in the weeds. You're in the head, not in the heart. So, so it, it actually, it's not like everything now I say is eight words. You know, I'm lazier and <laughs> the longer I practice. But if I really want to get somewhere, fewer words, the better. It's true. Because when you say like, oh, you know what advice so-and-so gave me, they're ne- you never regurgitate like lots and lots of things. You no. say, they say one, this is the one thing, yeah. like the highlight quote or yeah. top line. Yeah. What are some other things you learned to be a great psychologist? <laughs> oh, man. Mostly good psychologists in my book are intensely humble. That it's a funny thing in training where we get these grad students and we pour into their head all this theory and we encourage them to make all this inference about what's going on with people. And then the work of actually practicing over years is to become more and more agnostic and more and more clear in one's mind that you have no idea what anyone else's experience is unless they tell you their experience. And even what they're telling you may not be, maybe their belief about what happened may not even be an accurate accounting. But I would say any good clinician who's been practicing over time just becomes a listener and then really waits for data to line up and line up and line up and then makes conjectures with total humility about the likelihood that it may not be accurate. Like you just feel your way step by step. But there's no formula. There's here's my next best guess about what might be helpful. Let's try it out and see if it lands. And if it doesn't land, I'm on the wrong path. We'll find another. You know, so I think in some ways, the longer you practice, the the more reserved and neutral you get. And at the same time, much better as a clinician than when I was active and felt I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> Isn't that like one of those things, like when you get older, like you, all you do is realize how little you actually yeah. know? It's yeah. like the same thing, right? And you're just yeah. a much better clinician where you're like, I don't know, you tell me your story, right? But then you think like, gosh, isn't that a rare gift, right? I mean, that's like, that would be psychotherapy at its best. Like, hey, I want to hear your story. And I, I come to it without any skin in the game. And now, you know, I've got no angle here. Like, let's figure out your story and let's figure out where you're stuck. And then I'll watch while you figure out how to get unstuck. You know, I mean, that it doesn't look like much, but it's actually a very rare way to be with people. I want that job. (laughs) (laughs) I love my job. And the reason I love my job is I will do it. I cannot imagine retiring. I will learn something every day. I will never achieve mastery. And, And that for me, I think I'm kind of a learning addict. And so this idea of like people, like trying to learn people, right? I mean, like it's got no bottom. Right, which is just perfect for me. Huh, so cool. I love that. I was interested, though, in the book, you do point out that at times you can be a very not nice person. (laughs) I am shocked. I was shocked even reading it because I was like, she seems pretty nice. I don't know her yet. but And now that I see you, you seem even more nice than I Uh, So what do you mean by that? Like, what does your bad day uh, look like? Like, how bad do you get? Oh, I I think mostly— I feel like, in all honesty, we should, like, ask my family, right? <laughs> because I can okay. give you my I'll report. call them next. You call them yeah. next. I think mostly I I have a very, very strong sense of, like, there's ways that people treat each other. You know, and, the, and in our house, we're very, you know, no one mistreats anyone that is out of bounds. And I would like to think I don't ever do that anywhere else in my life. I think when I said that in the book, it's that, I mean, I also have strong opinions, you know, I, I know what fits for me and what doesn't. And, I, and my instincts are my best friends. And if, they're, if they don't like something, they don't like something, there's nothing I can do about it. So I think it's more that I can be, not so much, I, it might come off as cynical, but like not accepting of everything that comes my way and not even accepting of some things that I feel people 
around me might be accepting of. I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, right now it's the wellness industry. Like I'm really not loving the wellness industry right now. And I'm all for well-being and I like the idea of wellness. I am really not loving the kind of monetization of well-being, the idea that it's acquired through the use of particular products, particular oils, particular weighted blankets, particular apps, particular. I don't think people in the well-being industry are ill-intentioned, but I, I, I worry that if we can first sell the idea that everybody's supposed to be calm and relaxed all the time, which is not true, it's grossly untrue, then the moment people don't feel calm and relaxed, which usually takes within like five minutes of waking, right? Then, then we can show up with a sale like, oh, you don't feel calm and relaxed. Like, you know, here's this, this item, this product, like to try to reestablish your somehow it went missing well-being. And, and this to me, I, I feel is really harmful. I, I actually feel like it's a pretty dangerous path because there's no way to feel good all the time. And that's not, no generation before us was ever seeking that. And so... I think that's probably an example where I can have like a, a kind of hairy eyeball about stuff that could come off as cynical or jaundiced. But I'd like to think it's all rooted in I'm watching this not working for kids. I'm watching this back kids into corners they do not belong in. And the way that I kind of test this and think I might be on the right path is, you know, I often speak to groups of students. And when I say, look, you're supposed to be stressed. School's really hard. And you're supposed to be anxious from time to time because it alerts you when something's wrong. Their overwhelming response is they instantly feel so much better to hear that they're supposed to be stressed at times. And my goodness, they're in seventh grade. Like, of course, it's anxiety central. Like, what else would it be? Then I think, okay, we cannot be selling you anything suggesting that you're not supposed to feel this way from time to time, if not often. Hmm. Well, as someone who has purchased more than one weighted blanket... (laughs) I am a sucker for a sales pitch. And so far, no effect other than perhaps building up my biceps, getting into bed. And I'm sure it feels good. That's great. Yeah. But is it going to cure your problems? No. And the way this is like a lighter, more lighthearted look at it. You know how teenage girls love those face masks? Mm -hmm. They're all into the face masks. Oh, yeah. So next time you encounter one, flip it over to the back and see what it says on the back. I mean, they promise like a life of bliss. I mean, it's it's really quite remarkable. And, And so then, you know, this is like the not nice part of me. So then... I'm in my grocery store and I see on the shelf a jar of Noxzema. So I pull it off. I'm like, there, look, see, Noxzema promises nothing <laughs> because these things do nothing, right? Like this is my kind of face cream. Like it is telling the truth. You know, these face masks, they lie, they lie. So that, that's the darker cynical side of me. I love that. <laughs> can always trust Noxzema. You can. They're in a pinch. You mentioned in the book that girls with learning disorders have elevated levels of anxiety, which of course makes sense. Yeah. Right? Is there anything you can do there? Do you treat the anxiety first? Do you treat the learning disorder first? Or I would probably go after the learning disorder first. And I, and I think if we zoom out for a minute, you know, the issue here is kids run school all day. Mm-hmm. School is their world. School is their social life. It is their job. It is their universe. And if you happen to have a brain that was not designed to be taught the way most schools teach, that means you spend all day feeling like you're kind of knocking on the door of a room that everybody else is in. And, I mean, just the psychological wear and tear of that is just hard to even think about, really. And I'm always, like, 
blown away by kids with learning disorders who keep trying. I'm like, why would you even keep trying? Like, I would have given up years ago if I were you, right? And these earnest kiddos who are just, you know, knocking and knocking on this door that just was not built, you know, to in- in accommodate them. So I, I would say first, get them into the right setting or get them the supports that make their all day, every day not feel so, I mean, f- frankly, humiliating. I mean, that's the experience of kids. And then see what's left to address. Um, we have an extraordinary school in our community, um, Lawrence School in, in the suburbs of Cleveland, for kids with learning needs. And, I mean, they save kids' lives. They save kids' lives. And I just feel like every community should have some schools like this, and every kid should have access to schools that don't make them feel like a square peg always trying to get into a round hole. I agree. That would be amazing. Yeah. Empowering, amazing. So how do you deal with your own anxiety? Oh. You seem very calm to me, but... No, I would say... (laughs) Today. (laughs) I get anxious. I think I'm less anxious over time. I think one of the strange benefits of my professional life is sometimes I take care of some pretty awful outcomes, you know, unexpected deaths, you know, kids getting killed in car accidents and then taking care of the people around that situation. Um, That I think... It's funny, one of my very close friends is a oncologist who deals with pretty crummy leukemias. And I think we like each other because our sense of what constitutes a crisis is pretty similar. Like, no one's mortally wounded or dying or dead. Okay, we can handle this, you know. And so I think there is something, and I talk about this in Under Pressure, that dealing with stressful circumstances really does build up your capacity or adjust your yardstick for what's worth getting, you know, kind of amplified about but that does not mean that I walk through the world in a Zen state at all. I was given a big talk a couple of weeks ago, and it was different from the kind of talks I usually give. And I found myself suddenly becoming incredibly panicked that my flight was not going to get there, you know, as it's supposed to. And then trying to figure out if I could, like, arrange a backup flight that I could cancel. And then I left my talk in the hotel room and had to, like, zip back to get it, you know. And I had time, and I got there. All very unlike me. And I thought, I think I was a lot more anxious about that talk than I realized. But... I did all of this without any awareness that it was probably about the talk. So, you know, I'm still learning myself all the time. What do you credit? You've been so successful with your practice and these books and all of it. Like, what do you think made you able to do this? Was it just your, I mean, I know obviously you're super bright, but is there anything, like, when you think about, I don't know, our own daughters going off into the world and being able to internalize all of these coping skills and whatever, but then also being able to, like, pursue what they love and, like, achieve and help others. I don't know. Well, that's a really kind question. I mean, born on third base. <laughs> you know, let's start there, right? I, you know, was given a great education and had easy access to it. And, I, you know, I, I, you know, was sort of raised in a, in a setting that was loving and supportive and supportive of me. And then I would say I had the benefit of very good training very early in my career. I, you know, and I, I, and I would say that is largely because I knew early on that I wanted to be a psychologist. And so I was able to line things up to move myself towards the kind of training I had in mind. And so one of the nicest things that was said when Untangled, my first commercial book, sort of took off, a friend of ours in our neighborhood, a British friend, our friend Peter, he said, oh, Lisa, look at that. 25 years into your career, you're an overnight success. <laughs> and, and, I, and I really appreciated it because... This is all I know. This is all I've ever done. And, and I mean, I, I, you know, I signed up for Intro Psych the second I got to college. And, and we, we were talking about we both, you know, working at the Yale Child Study Center. I mean, I took myself down there as a, as a sophomore and started researching for them. I was 
collecting data on teenagers as a teenager. I was, you know, I was interviewing adolescents in the community. And so I think what has happened in terms of the shift into a more public domain is that up to that point, I had probably spent just under 20 years teaching college classes, writing books on the academic side, practicing a lot, working with lots of families, consulting at a school in our community, Laurel School, and conducting research and reading research. And I think what happened is all of those experiences that I'd sort of maintained privately and quietly, as lots of working psychologists do, they all just happened to intersect at a point that seemed to be of use to a broader audience. And and that's, I think, what happened. Do you have, having gone through the writing process now, I know you've done a lot of academic work and also Mm -hmm. your other books, what advice would you have? Oh, it is a skill like any other. It is a skill like any other. I'm coming up on seven years of writing for the New York Times, and I look back at my early columns, and I'm like, oh, gosh. Like, I would not write it that way at all now. And I would just say I was a terrible writer coming out of high school, and I was pretty crummy all through college and got incrementally better in grad school, but really didn't start to hit my stride on it until out of grad school, I co-authored a teaching book with a very dear colleague who also happens to be an English professor. And then I co-authored a textbook in abnormal psychology. And my half of that textbook was 800 pages long. And then we wrote twice. And I have a funny story about that, actually. And that you get, you get better. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, like you, there's no way you don't. But the funniest thing, so when we were writing the textbook, you know, you end up with all this manuscript all around the house, you know. And so my older daughter is 16, and she was probably five or six when I was working on that book. And so I would carry with us everywhere we went stacks of paper and markers, and she would just draw and draw and draw, because I could just throw away, recycle paper all day long, because I had so much paper. And then occasionally she would do a really fabulous drawing that I wanted to send to a grandparent, but I'd always have to flip it over because the book was an abnormal psych, so I'm like, God, I hope there's not like paraphilias, you know, (laughs) perversions on the other side. Like, we can't send to grandma the like, you know, the, the like you know, sexual disorder chapters. I was always like flipping the other side to see what my kid was doing her kid art on. So, I, I, but I think that huge stack, that the volume of paper, I mean, I still have it. I, I haven't gone through all the paper that textbook required. Wow. So you have to go back just to see if you missed any art. Exactly, yeah. right? Especially art that isn't on the back of something X-rated. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing all your expertise. Thank you for what you do. Thanks. What a valuable service. Oh, thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much for listening today. Again, please go check out wefoundtime.com, wefoundtime.com for this week's new five essays from authors who have been in the podcast. And also go to goldbelly.com and order some Nini's Treats Crumb Cakes. They are so good and you will not regret it, although your clothes might be a little tight next week. Um, I hope you all have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 